Hello and welcome to Talk of Today, where we explore developments in science, technology and society, and what they could mean for the future. I'm your host, Sam Barton. Today we are talking about meditation. Meditation has exploded in popularity in recent years. Once thought of as purely a spiritual practice, the physical and mental benefits of it are now being recognized by science. Secular institutions like schools and corporations are jumping onto the Zen train to reap these benefits, which range from increases in productivity, improved sleep quality, increased creativity, as well as reduced stress and anxiety, to just name a few. On a side note, there's also the fact that some people report of meditation inducing psychedelic experiences, which is a tantalizing prospect in of itself. While the health benefits are widespread and remarkable, what I'm more intrigued about is the idea of self-mastery. A sentiment echoed by celebrated thinkers for thousands of years is that mastery of oneself is, in a way, a prerequisite for flourishing. The Buddha said that the greatest worth is self-mastery. Aristotle mused that knowing yourself is the beginning of all wisdom. And da Vinci said that one can have no smaller or greater mastery than mastery of oneself. In a world where opportunity has never been so abundant, the biggest obstacle, at least from my own experience, is myself. I'm sure you can all relate. Getting started on that report that you've been procrastinating on, turning down the free pizza available in the office, or stopping yourself from making that snide comment are all things we wish we had complete control over. The talk of command and understanding of the self is beginning to pervade more secular mediums as well, with people like Gary Vaynerchuk, entrepreneur and social media sensation, extolling the benefits of self-awareness, expressing that it's one of the most important traits to master when it comes to making your own success. One of the fundamental reasons why this may be the case, as you will hear in this episode, is that meditation is one of the tools we can use to craft the lens through which we view the world and shape our experience to extract more subjectively relevant information from our environment. If you hang around to the end of the episode, you'll hear me talk more about this in more detail. It may convince you to finally start meditating. I'll also talk briefly about the effect the psychedelic substance DMT had on my meditation sessions. I meditate with an EEG that gives me real-time feedback. The data from my meditation sessions pre- and post-consumption of DMT are starkly contrasted. You can see it for yourself on the show notes at talkoftoday.com. Anyway, moving on. With me today discussing meditation is Dr. Sarah Lazar from Harvard University. Sarah and her lab look into the impacts that yoga and meditation have on various cognitive and behavioral functions. In our conversation, we cover the benefits of meditation and the effects it can have on your brain, its effects on mental illnesses, politics and neuroanatomy, personal EEG devices that provide real-time neurofeedback, and whether or not meditation should be widely prescribed, just like regular exercise, optimal nutrition, and sleep. And of course, some helpful advice for those giving this ancient practice a go. So I present to you my conversation with Dr. Sarah Lazar. So my name is Sarah Lazar, and I am a research scientist at Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston, Massachusetts. And um, about 24, 25 years ago, um, when I was still in grad school, um, a friend and I decided to run the Boston Marathon. And we overtrained, and I hurt my knee and my back, and I went to see a physical therapist, and they told me I had to stop running and just stretch. 
And as I was leaving the physical therapist's office, I saw an ad for a vigorous yoga class that promised to promote um, strength and flexibility, um, but also endurance, you know, cardiovascular endurance. And so I thought, wow, this is a great way to just stretch, but stay in shape and maybe I can still run the marathon. And at that point, when you said yoga to me, I did not have a very good opinion of yoga. <laughs> you know, I thought it was very, uh, you know, up there with like, you know, crystals and, you know, uh, you know, you know, magic, uh, you know, brainwaves. A bit of woo-woo like, stuff. Yeah, yeah, very woo-woo stuff. Very, very woo stuff. And so, you know, I went to the yoga class purely as a form of physical therapy. You know, whenever the teacher made any sort of claims, I'd roll my eyes and be like, yeah, 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 get me out of here. <laughs> but I stuck with it. And the amazing thing is that after about a month, I really started to notice some really profound uh, impacts on my life, you know, that I was much calmer and less reactive. And just, um, I just really started seeing people in a different way and thinking about people in a different way and, uh, you know, really had a profound impact on my life. So um, as I finished up grad school, I decided that I want to switch and start doing this research. And so I've been doing it ever since. And when, sorry, when you say switch, what were you doing prior oh, to? Oh, yeah. No, so before, my PhD is in molecular biology. And so I looked at, at, at bacteria. <laughs> so very, oh, okay. very different. Uh, but, you know, I was interested actually in how bacteria respond to stress. In a way, it's not really. We're kind of sort of related. We're just big, big. Or we're just a lot bigger. I mean, we yeah. still get stressed out. Exactly. About different things. Exactly, uh, yeah. So what? Have you been looking into? I, I know. I know you've been researching uh, yoga and meditation. What? Um, how, how have you carry out, carried out the research? Right. So some of the first studies. Um, so um, so I use a tool called MRI, right? Which is like the MRI machine. Like you know, if you hurt your knee and you have to go get an MRI of your knee or your back, it's the same machine, but it's modified specifically to look at the brain. And you all have probably seen pictures of, you know, brains with yellow spots on them. You know, so that's what I do. And that's my, my main tool of choice. And so back um, when I first started doing this research, they were using it to look at brain activity. And a few studies had happened where they were actually looking at the structure of the brain. So actually looking at like all the folds and how much gray matter and white matter people had. And so that was pretty new. And there was a study showing that People, they took people who had never juggled before, they scanned them, they taught them how to juggle, and then they scanned them again three months later. And they showed that part of the brain that's involved in detecting visual motion increased, you know, from practice learning how to juggle. I thought, wow, look at that brain change in the brain in just three months. And at the time, I'd been doing a study of long-term meditation practitioners, people who have been practicing for five or 10 years. Um, I thought, wow, if, you know, juggling for three months could do that to your brain, what would meditating for, you know, 10 years do to your brain? So I looked at the brains of my subjects compared to people who didn't meditate. And I saw that there were definitely differences in their brain structure. There are several brain regions where there's more gray matter in the long-term meditators compared to the controls. So that was pretty cool. That was our first big study. But then I thought again about that juggling study and thought, okay, three months. Um, currently, or back then, and still, you know, if you go to the doctor and you say, hey, I'm stressed, they're likely to send you to a meditation-based stress reduction program. And those are about two months. And at the end of those two months programs, people are like, oh my God, this changed my life. You know, just like I had seen with the yoga. And so I thought, okay, you know, again, if juggling for three months can change your brain, what about, you know, these two months stress reduction programs? So again, we'd uh, scan people before and after this two-month uh, stress reduction program and compared them to controls who had never meditated, just scanned two months apart. And again, we saw that there was changes. We actually saw changes in two months in brain regions related to stress and well-being and memory and uh, compassion in these individuals in just two months. 
so what regions of the brain uh, were affected or were shown to have significant changes? Right. So one of the main regions we found is a region called the PCC. Um, and the PCC is a part of the brain that's involved in attention and mind wandering. It's the number one region that's impacted by Alzheimer's disease and why you know, people with Alzheimer's you know, sort of don't know where they are and sort of lose a track of who they are. Um, and they have a lot of mind, mind, mind wandering problems. Um, the other region that's impacted by Alzheimer's disease is called the hippocampus, which is the main part of the brain involved in learning and memory. And that is also positively impacted by meditation. Um, and again, and so the idea is because with, when you meditate, you're remembering to pay attention to the present moment. So you're, you're practicing paying attention, you're practicing remembering to pay attention. So I think those are the reasons why those two regions are positively impacted. We also saw a decrease in the amygdala. The amygdala is the main fear and anxiety part of the brain. And the, that was correlated with the change in stress. And when you say um, uh-huh. uh, a change, is it in uh, volume or is it in terms of density or are they um, correlated or are they they're related? Yeah. At them in the same way? So, right. So we looked at, at density. And so what does this mean in terms of what's going on in the brain? Good question. So <laughs> excellent question, actually. So with MRI, we can go and look at the cellular level to, or the molecular level, see, see what's going on. We really can just look at, see at the very gross level, but with animals, they're able to go in and actually chop up brains. And so what they do with animals is they, um, you know, teach them some new tasks. They see similar changes in MRI, and then they chop up their brains to see what happened. So in animals, what they see is that because um, we're born with all the neurons that we're ever going to be born with, right? And so we're not getting new neurons. But what they see in animals is that um, neurons look sort of like trees with lots of branches and lots of roots. And although you're born with all the neurons you're going to have, the amount of roots and branches varies dramatically. Um, over our lifespan. You know, so when you learn things, you grow lots of new branches or lots of new roots. And the roots and branches are what connect the neurons to each other. And that's where all the, the thinking and the, the cognition and the you know, stuff actually happens is in the roots and the branches and where they interact. And so what we think is happening with meditation is that it's promoting the growth of these roots and branches. And so there's more ability to have cognition and it's enhancing the, the, the function of those regions by producing more branches and roots in those areas. So does neuroplasticity change as you get older? And I guess what I'm thinking is, could you uh, generate more change in the brain if you were younger compared to if you were older, if you practiced you know, the same amount and to the same effectiveness? Right. So they were actually doing that study right now. We don't know is the short answer. You know, probably it's a little less effective for older people, but we do know that there are some people who started practicing when they were older and it does seem to have beneficial effects for them. Um, and right now the study I'm doing, certainly the older people are seeming to be enjoying it and they seem, they say it's helping them. Again, we don't know if it's the same amount as the younger people. We'll have to wait for the end of the study, but uh, you know, stay tuned. Okay, well, that's exciting. Um, do we know if meditation and yoga have the same effects? Or ver- I, I know they might be similar, but what are what? Right again, is there any um, we did a study. The study is with long-term meditation practitioners and long-term yoga practitioners, so it's hard to say. Like we haven't done a study where we what we need to do is randomize people. Um, you know, where some get yoga and some get meditation, and. Um, well, actually, we have done that too, <laughs> but that's a sort of different study. <laughs> but not, um, and so there, there's similarities, but there's also differences. And so, um, and also, like when you talk to people, they'll tell you that they are similar, but they're different, and that subjectively they're different. 
Um, yeah. Some people, when they, when they do yoga, I mean, I've done yoga a few times, not too many times. And once like the first time I was literally just stretching, I wasn't getting, I wasn't really, yeah. you know, breathing properly and doing all that sort of stuff. But, um, the most recent time I went, I really got quite, it, it was quite meditative. So I think like there's, there's a huge, there's huge subjectivity and I mean, how people approach it and, and all that sort of stuff. So that'd be quite hard to, to control for, but yeah. And I think it's the same yeah. with meditation that first few times you do it, you're like, what am I doing? And, you know, and so it takes a few times to really understand what you're doing and to really get in the zone. I mean, some people pick it up like that, but you know, most people struggle with both of them a little bit. Um, and so the cool thing was that in both the studies, you know, we did find that there was mostly there was overlap, but there was also some things that were unique to yoga and some that were unique to meditation. And so some areas of the brain responded more to yoga, some areas responded more to meditation. Um, but it's not really, but you know, they were both, but those regions still respond in, in both groups more than the controls. Mm-hmm. So it definitely, okay. there's clearly there's an impact, you know, so it's sort of like, um, so I like to think of it like, you know, running versus swimming, right. Or running versus, you know, I don't know, I guess we're playing soccer versus playing football or biking or something like that, that, you know, all have general beneficial effects, you know, but mm-hmm. probably, you know, swimming is going to have a lot more impact on your upper body than biking, <laughs> mm, <laughs> you know, yeah. but probably they're going to have fairly equal in your, in your legs, perhaps, you know, and there's going to be other subtle differences, but the general overall impact is going to be, you know, in terms of health and wellness is probably gonna be similar regardless if you do yoga or meditation. So while we're on the topic of exercise, um, some people liken meditation to being exercise for the brain. Yeah. Uh, would you agree with this? And if yeah. so, should it be prescribed just like, you know, good nutrition, you know, adequate amounts of sleep and exercise, like should everyone be meditating? Um, so <laughs> on a personal level, I'd say yes, but I mean, I don't, I don't know that the research is there yet to like make it actually be like policy yet. But I mean, I think mm-hmm. that there's some merit I'd say for that to be true. Yeah. Uh, that there does seem that for most people it's beneficial. But I was, I think it's important to make a caveat. Um, so people say, who've just had a heart attack or who you know, are not in really good shape, you know, you don't want them to go out and run marathons, right? You know, that you want them to exercise, but they need to start really slowly. And some people, maybe you don't want them to exercise. Similarly with psychiatric conditions, those people should proceed with great caution and you may not want them to meditate. So for instance, people with schizophrenia, people with um, severe PTSD or uh, bipolar disorder, you know, people are not well uh, medicated. Those people, there's a, uh, there is a possibility that people can become psychotic, in particular people who have serious trauma or, um, uh, you know, again, schizophrenia or bipolar disorder. And so those people, again, proceed with great caution and maybe just like, you know, five minutes. And if they see symptoms appearing, they should back off. But, and, you know, under the guidance of a good psychiatrist or psychologist and a really good meditation teacher, you know, they should not try to do that on their own. But if people are, you know, generally psychologically healthy, then yeah, I think five, 10, 15 minutes of practice a day, you know, could be really beneficial. What about those with depression mm-hmm. or anxiety or ADHD? Because the mental illness, uh, well, mental illnesses range um, vastly in terms of, you know, how they affect you and well, what, what they can do. So right. well, what, what, how, what would you comment on, on those? Yeah, no, uh, definitely. There's elements. a lot of research demonstrating that it's a very effective for reducing symptoms, um, particularly with depression. It seems to be very good at reducing the recurrence of depression and you know, for minimizing, um, reducing symptoms, and uh, also with anxiety. It seems to be very, very good for anxiety. And again, I'd say you know, some people 
just as some people like to swim, some people like to run. Again, I'd say there's no data yet. It's a, it's a question I get all the time. You know, should I do yoga? Should I do the meditation? What type of meditation? Again, I think just like it's running versus swimming versus, you know, biking, you know, try them, see which ones you like, you know, what works for you. Mm-hmm. So this question of, uh, you know, doing, doing a little bit of research and from the looks of it, it kind of gives you like top-down control yeah. um, to, a, to a reasonable degree. And there was something that, was, that really interested me, and it's, it's somewhat related to the depression anxiety thing, but uh, not so much actually. Um, mm-hmm. So I was looking at some research carried out on a large sample of um, young adults found a relationship between self-reported political attitudes and gray matter volume. Okay. And the research found that people who are self-described liberals had increased in gray matter volume in the anterior cingulate cortex. Okay. Whereas there was an association between people who described themselves as conservative increase, uh, had an increased volume of the right amygdala. Now from looking into meditation, it affects the same regions. Right. It, so do you think that, well, so given that people who meditate show an increased activity in you know the anterior cingulate cortex and decreased amygdala um, gray matter density, is there a reason to believe that meditation could make could, could make people more liberal? <laughs> Isn't that a loaded question? Um, I, well, I they, I know right, yeah. But I just thought of wow, this is like just looking at the research. There was quite um yeah, I'm just seeing all the same things pop up. Yeah, because no. that's that's got some political that's got some implications. Because if you make a policy and you say everyone should meditate, but oh, it might make you more liberal like people yeah might like that. no i agree yeah i think i think that's probably an overly just simplified generalization um and mm-hmm. also it's really interesting i know um so right now british parliament someone introduced meditation to british parliament and so now there's people on both the left and the right in british parliament who are meditating and they're all loving it and you know i don't think it's making them less conservative um i was talking to someone who says that they're they're, they're behaving more civilly there's a few, come some fewer there's still some big arguments and whatnot but um so it does seem to be helping in that regard but it doesn't seem to be making them less conservative so i mean because also like the amygdala has 39 different subnuclei so saying amygdala is sort of like saying you know and even the acc is is, is really big and so i think you know it's and also size so there's more the brain is, is more complex than that so i don't think it, it's so simple to say oh yeah this region got bigger this region got smaller that that's there's mm-hmm. those are you know that that would that would be a bit of a leap, I would say. So, yeah, I mean, yeah. it's like the most complex thing we know of in the universe, and the tools that we use to view it are pretty, um, pretty less than average. And I mean, we can't just go cut up people people's brains after exactly. you know, doing some studies on them. Exactly. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, we've got some issues. Um, so you know, we're talking about um, you know top down control, and I was I, I know that we we take in a ridiculous amount of sensory stimuli mm-hmm. and we can't process all of it correct um so you know classical theories of sensory processing view the brain as like a passive stimulus driven device but there's evidence that supports the processing of stimuli is controlled by top-down influences mm-hmm. um so i'm wondering if seeing as though we're inundated with information all the time could meditation be a way of crafting the lens that we use to view the world and extract you know, more subjectively relevant information. Yeah. Actually, that's a big, at least, um, well, again, there's many different types of meditation. I would say mindfulness meditation in particular, that's exactly what it's doing. In fact, there's some data on that um, where they actually looked at sensory gating 
and sensory sensitivity. So what, what does gating mean um, in, in this context? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, so it's basically, you know, how sensitive, you know, and, and um, so the task was, is, um, so if I were to take two small pins and put them on the surface of your skin, you know, say an inch or two apart, you could tell that there's two points. Then if I slowly move them together, you'd say there's still two points, but at some point you can't tell if there's one point or two points, right? Even though there's still maybe a couple millimeters apart you know, you think that there's, there's one point instead of two points. And so, um, but after med- mindfulness meditation training, um, Tai Chi as well, actually, uh, they found that the, the distance between those two points decreases uh, before you say it's two points so that you're better able to distinguish one point from two points. And so, um, and so that's sort of, um, so basically you're, you're more sensitive. You're, you know, better able to discriminate fine touch, uh, you know, after these practices, um, c- you know, compared to before. So, um, and so that, and so is that useful? I mean, I don't know if that particular task is useful, but the general idea, at least with mindfulness Buddhist meditation, is that um, you're also becoming aware because emotions have a sensory component, you know, and a, a feeling state to them. And so you're not very just, visceral. Yeah. Exactly. Anyone who's like felt, you know, anger or any emotion, you really feel it's, it's quite remarkable actually. And I've noticed that with my, in my own practice that I've become a lot more aware of my body's responses to situations. Exactly. And it's quite, it's remarkable how strong it can be at times. Um, exactly. It's, it's somewhat unnerving. Yeah. And also you start becoming more aware of like really subtle emotions it's like you don't even realize you're feeling it. It's like, oh, hold on. You know, and you feel that little feel that you know is associated with, you know, anger or sadness or pride or whatever. And so you're starting to really notice really subtle emotions in your body. And so that's really wonderful. And that's really the goal of the practice is to really, to, to, like you said, to become more aware, to become more in touch with your feelings, literally more in touch with your feelings through the increased sensory awareness. So I, I think I got a little bit excited um, because, I mean... It's, it's, I'm so interested in this topic and uh, I kind of just jumped ahead. Can we talk about the different types of meditation? Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. And what, what sort of, um, I, I don't know if we, if we know to what extent, uh, well, what the differences in their effects might be, but right. uh, could you just speak on them or comment on it? Yeah, so most of the research has been done on mindfulness just because um, there was... And sorry, just could we um, yeah, yeah, just define, define mindfulness? Yeah, Let's say yeah. someone has absolutely no idea okay. what meditation is. All right, so we'll do a little bit my, What is mindfulness meditation? Too. All right, yeah. so way, way, way back, thousands of years, there were certain forms of meditation developed and in, mostly in India. And um, you know, some of the, and a lot of them don't even exist anymore today. <laughs> you know, they morphed and changed. And so there's some, many forms of meditation are very devotionally based where, you know, you bring to mind the image of a God or, a, you know, a, you know, some sort of deity or something. And um, often it's mantra based, you know, so you repeat a word or phrase over and over again, or, um, and often they are very much about training attention. So you, again, you repeat a word or phrase over and over again, or maybe you look at a flickering candle, or you have a very complex image and you just focus it. And the whole idea is you're really focusing attention. And very importantly, you're excluding sensory experience, actually, right? And it's very much, um, and so you get very one-pointed focus on this one object. And uh, it's sort of become into like a trance state. And they've actually shown that people in these trance states, like they've actually like shot off guns next to them and, you know, uh, you stab them and they just, they don't flinch. 
right? They're just how do you get the ethics board to approve the stabbing? Yeah, well, I mean, not stabbing, but you know, you know, poking them <laughs> yeah. hard, and, yeah. And some of this was yeah, done, yeah, you yeah. know, before the IRB. This is you know, some of these studies are many, many years. Uh-huh. But anyways, and so, uh, and so, you know, they they just they don't react because they're in this really deep trance state. But then the idea is that in that deep trance state, they you know, become one with the universe or one with God. And, you know, they have these intense spiritual experiences. So then the Buddha came along about uh, 3,000 years ago, 4,000 years ago or so. And, um, you know, he did those and he felt that there was something missing. And so he developed this concept of mindfulness and he really championed this concept of mindfulness. And what he says is that, yeah, those states are great. But also, even just walking around during the day, you want to have a different mind state. And that mind state is mindfulness, and that's really important. And so what is mindfulness? So mindfulness is present moment awareness of sensory experience in a non-judging, accepting way. And so, um, so during meditation, the way that would be practiced is, you know, so just sitting and like say, for instance, watching your breath. So, you know, as your belly you know, how do you know you're breathing, right? So can you feel your belly and your uh, chest expand and contract? You know, can you just, you know, notice those muscles expanding and contracting as you're breathing so that you know that you're breathing? Um, you know, feeling the contact of, of your skin against the ground or against the, um, you know, the chair. Um, you know, feeling what the sun feels like on your face or what, you know, the temperature in the room, feeling your posture. So you're really focused on just present moment experience, but in a very non-judging way. So it's not saying like, oh, you know, uh, this is uncomfortable or, you know, whatever you may be thinking about. It's just noticing what's there right now in, your, in the present moment. So the key thing is the present moment experience. Um, and uh, again, some other forms of yoga and meditation also encourage that. Like I said, Tai Chi also is very much, it's moving, but it's very much a sensory experience as you're moving. Um, again, some forms of yoga, but not all forms of yoga also really focus on sensory experience as opposed to getting into the crazy posture. So it varies a lot from tradition to tradition. Um, and so, uh, um, so anyway, so this idea of mindfulness though, is that you, like I said, you sort of, you gain greater awareness of the present moment, you gain greater awareness of yourself. And that's sort of, it's a different pathway to achieving, you know, one was with the universe is because you notice things in a different way. Um, it's a little harder to explain, <laughs> but again, you, you, you gain, you know, you get to that same place that you get with the one-pointed focus, but through a different pathway. So okay. that's sort of a very gross, I'm sure there's going to be people all over the place saying, what? No, no. And I probably didn't do very good. But in, in terms of two minutes. <laughs> yeah, no, no, don't worry. Don't worry. It's yeah, fine. It's fine. World religions. <laughs> yeah. Um, so this, in basically a cultivating attention or the ability to attend to things. Uh-huh. Um, so, which I'm, you know, for people listening who are like, uh, like present moment, right. I don't really care. Like yeah. if, if you were to think about it as cultivating attention, I mean, what is important in terms of if at your job, you want to be able to focus for as long as possible, as exactly. intently as possible. So yeah. well, I guess my question is what are the, uh, how does this benefit people in the day to day aside from being, you know, more empathic or having greater control of one's emotions. What are the, right. you know, let's say the more productive, sure. economically productive benefits of meditation? Right. Well, so certainly, yeah, being able to stay focused at your work for, for longer periods of time, being less reactive. Um, there actually, so Google 
you know, someone at Google, the HR person at Google actually thought this might be useful. He's introduced at Google and now it's big at Google. Like, you know, and that's a, <laughs> there's a book called search inside yourself, which is all about bringing mindfulness into Google. Um, and so, you know, they, you know, people there clearly felt it was beneficial. And so it, it went through Google in a very big way. Um, so yeah, so sustained attention, but also, um, there's some evidence that enhances creativity. There's some evidence that, um, uh, you know, so dealing with complex problems and being able to sort of break them down and sort of deal with them because often we feel overwhelmed. And so we're going to feel less overwhelmed by these big problems. We can see them sort of in different light and sort of from different points of view. Um, uh, there's also that's an interesting view of, um, yeah. a way, way of looking at empathy because yes. if, uh, that's what you do with empathy, right? You look, you're, exactly. you stand in someone else's shoes and the ability to see something in different lights I mean, exactly. That perspective is invaluable. I've never thought about that. That's actually quite interesting. It's actually the same part of the brain, and that's one of the parts of the brain that changes in eight weeks with an MBSR. Is that you know that part of the brain which allows you to sort of stop and see things from a different point of view that changes, which is really that acronym MBSR. Oh, so mindfulness-based stress reduction. That's the main, yeah, yeah, uh, meditation-based program. Um, So again, so hippocampus, so better memory, better attention. Uh, more creativity, they're able to see things from different points of view. Um, but then also what we've heard from people just sort of anecdotally is also um, a little more social interaction and caring about your coworkers, you know, better interpersonal, uh, you know, and sort of better able to deal with the, you know, annoying coworkers, which is always pretty useful. Um, uh, so there's a lot of those sort of benefits as well. Uh, you know, less, you know, certainly cause often people have to get up and give talks. And so if you're less reactive around that, you're better able to, you know, stay calm and, you know, that whole thing. Um, so there's a lot of, of those sort of benefits, certainly, um, you know, not freaking out when you've got a big deadline. You know, there's a lot of, a lot of different ways that meditation can be useful. Sounds uh, like a panacea. <laughs> well, it's like a, in a way. Yeah. I mean, again, it's, it's not 100%. I mean, it's, it's, it's hard to say, yeah, it's hard to, you know, just blanket it or just say it's, you know, the be all end all solution. But right. given the, the range and, you know, the, the substantial effects it can have on, on people's lives, it's, um, it's definitely something worth integrating. And it's, yeah. it's nonsense because I know this and I still don't meditate every single morning. Or every, yeah. And, and a lot of people uh, are in the same boat, but I guess, you know, you don't have to do it. You don't have to start out being a, a yogi doing it for you know, hours on end. Right. Um, and speaking of yogis, um, what do we, and what are the differences in the, do, do we know if there are any differences in the base, you know, level of um, just, everyday conscious experience between you know the layman and the yogi yeah yeah Yeah. and the yogi yeah yeah maybe not conscious experience because consciousness is a whole other uh yeah well i mean it's hard to know because we haven't defined consciousness like you know there is Mm -hmm. no good yeah exactly exactly. so yeah there's definitely there's a couple people who actually study monks you know they hook them up with eeg and put them in the mri and yeah their baseline brain activity and baseline you know, it looks different. <laughs> you know, their brains are definitely different, which makes sense. I mean, it's sort of like saying, you know, is the body of an you know, Olympic athlete different than, you know, the average Joe? Well, yeah, obviously, you know, their body's going to be very, very different. So same, same again, like it's a mental exercise. Their mm-hmm. brains, you know, they can pay attention in a way, in very precise ways. Um, you know, they see things. Um, oh, that's actually another benefit that's not talked about too often. There's not much research on this. Um, you, of course, there's the main dominant voice in your head, but there's a little voice in the back of your head, you know, that's sort of, and like sort of subconscious and sub, minimally conscious thoughts and, you know, feelings and stuff like that. 
meditation totally lets you tune into that. And so you just get more information about what's going on in your mind. Like there's all sorts of going, stuff going on in your mind that you don't even aware of. And when you start to meditate, you start seeing all of it. And that's really cool. Um, and again, and that's a lot of things that the, the monks talk about is that, you know, they can, you know, they see the unproductive thoughts. They see the, the little thoughts that are just, you know, mean sometimes, <laughs> um, you know, mm-hmm. and, and these sorts of things. And so, um, and so that's a big part of what happens is that, be, and they 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 train their mind to, to, you know, to really just be focused on the present moment, not to get distracted. And uh, we can see that in the brain scans. Okay. Yeah. So you, you mentioned EEGs and um, at the start of this call, I mentioned that I've got a little oh, uh, yeah. personal EEG thing that I meditate with and basically gives me auditory feedback depending on what my brain is doing, you know, what, what are my brain waves? Uh, and I'm just wondering um, if you could comment on, and you know, I, I know that this might not be an area of expertise, but what is the effectiveness of this sort of stuff? If, I mean, because right. these, these, because there are a lot of these coming onto the market that say, you know, they can help you become more, you know, more Zen and all that sort of stuff. And I know, right. I'm just wondering, like, do we know enough about what is, what brainwaves are associated <laughs> with a meditative state and can these be measured accurately with a device that costs, you know, $300. Right. Well, that's the big question. I, the existing units, I don't know much about the, exi- I mean, like you said, I don't know much about this. I don't, I don't think we understand the meditating brain well enough to be able to really do that well is my guess. I mean, they might be able mm-hmm. to get you into something that's close to a meditative state, but I don't think it's true. I, I doubt it'd be true meditation if you're just going by just trying to match your brain waves to the, you know, to whatever they're producing. Um, mm-hmm. I think it would require a little bit more than that. Um, that's actually something is there's also, um, there's a million apps now and, you know, there's all sorts of audio recordings. Those are all great, but I really stress to people, you know, also with these headset things, you know, they're great tools to help, but you got to have a teacher and a real teacher, you really, especially when you're first getting started, you really need a teacher to really train you properly. And also because it's really easy to think you're doing something right and you're really doing it quite wrong or you think there's something in you've done something really important and it's really not. I get a lot of phone calls and emails from people who are like, Oh yeah, I experienced this. I'm an advanced meditator. I'm like, no, 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 that's the beginning. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so, and so, and then, you know, I always ask them, you know, did you talk to your teacher about this? Oh, I don't have a teacher. Get a teacher. You know, teachers really, they can help you because there's a lot of blind alleys. And so they can keep you out of the blind alleys. They can really get you going in the right direction um, and keep you on track. And so again, so I think these tools could potentially be helpful, but I have not seen them really develop to the point yet where they're, where they're quite there yet. I mean, I think they're more mm-hmm. kind of toys at the moment, but I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. for maybe who knows. So, but the, I know definitely know people who are working on them to make them be more so. Yeah. Well, it's, I mean, any sort of feedback is good, you know, exactly. it's nice to kind of have some sort of course correction. Well, yeah. I mean, as long as it's accurate feedback, I mean, yeah. to a reasonable degree. Um, so what, do we know what makes for a, a good, meditation session yeah i mean it's a subjective experience i mean do we right. can you comment on that well again this is sort of a little bit where mindfulness is different from the other forms of meditation because with if you're trying to get into this trance state then it's sort of a subjective yes i was in the trance state or no i wasn't with the mindfulness the idea is that no all meditation sessions are good meditation sessions because the point is that you see it and so even if your mind is a storm that's okay because can you see oh my mind is distracted right now. And you sort of see, can you step sort of back and sort of see your mind happening without being in the middle of it? 
And that's really the goal of mindfulness meditation is to, because again, you want to be able to do this throughout the entire day, no matter what you're doing. So when you're talking to people, when you're writing your emails, that the whole time you're sort of part of your mind is sort of stepped back and watching the whole thing and sort of observing it and, you know, in this particular way. And so in that regard, if you can develop that, that meta-awareness, then it doesn't really matter. You know, all meditation is good meditation. So, you know, even if you're, like I said, you know, you're just in a total mind storm about whatever, uh, you know, angry, depressed, sad, whatever. Um, and so I think that's one of the key differences between the two practices. So there's people listening to this who I'm sure are thinking, okay, I'm sold. I'm going to start meditating um, tomorrow morning or today. Uh-huh. Um, what advice or what consideration, what, what do you think they should take into account before they uh, get into it? Or, you know, how should they get started? I know you mentioned getting a teacher, you know, mm-hmm. how long should they try? What sort of meditation do you think they should um, right. um, try first? So if you could just comment on, uh, on that. Yeah. I mean, that's a hard question. Cause again, there's a lot of personal preferences. So, you know, I'd say find something that sounds appealing. I mean, some people love mantra. Some people hate it. Some people like this idea of mindfulness. Some people like prefer the idea of the of a mantra, you know, or, of a you know, or chanting or whatever. And so, you know, figure out what appeals to you, and then, yeah, I guess just start it. Um, there's, again, like, there's a million apps online that can help you get started. Uh, there's a program called Headspace that has a lot of information that is very, very popular. Uh, unfortunately, they charge ten dollars a month, but I think you can do like the first month free or something. Um, I think they've got the take 10, that's what it's called. Yeah. That you get 10 free meditation sessions. And then after that, you have to, uh, you have to start paying for the subscription, but he's got yeah. a very calming voice. His voice, yeah. the, the guy, I, I'm not sure if it changes, but it, it's, I mean, I, I just, just thinking about it makes me feel. Yeah. Really he used to be a monk. He was a monk for several years and then he, you know, started this company. So it's, uh, which is interesting in itself, but yeah, so that might be a good way yeah. to at least get started, but you know, just to see, okay, do I like this? Give it a try. Um, but like I said, after, you know, you definitely want to start with a teacher, you know, fairly soon. Cause again, you're going to have questions. Mm-hmm. You're going to be, you know, you don't want to go from the blind alleys. Um, mm-hmm. and again, if you don't like that type of meditation, find something else. Mm-hmm. And what about these these silent retreats? Yeah. Um, and you can disappear for you know uh, a day or three days or a week, ten days, yeah, a week, um, yeah. Would three you? <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I've heard that um, it's if you're if you're a beginner, it's not recommended just to go off on right. the, on the ten day one because um, you might you might struggle. Uh, would yeah. you suggest that before people? Um, look into doing these things or, or go on them, they at least have a teacher or have meditated for a few months just yeah. based on your own experience? Definitely, yeah. And definitely working with a teacher and you know, having a sense of it, making sure you're, you're practicing. But no, the retreats are fantastic. You know, I've been on several of them. Um, and no two are the same. You know, some of them, you know, it's smooth sailing. Sometimes they're rocky. So that no two are ever exactly alike. Um, but definitely, yeah, I've been practicing for several years before I went on my first retreat. But again, I know some people who, like you said, a couple months and then go on their first one. And um, I also, because I had done several one-day retreats and two-day retreats before I went on my first 10-day retreat. So mm-hmm. definitely, I would say maybe do at least one or two one-day retreats before you go for a, for a week. Yeah, yeah. All righty. Well, I think that um, that covers everything I wanted to cover. So uh, well, thank you very much. Thank you. This is a lot of fun. And, oh, and actually, sorry, I, I always do this. People have listened to the past episodes. I always say like, oh, yep, that's about it. Wait, no, hold up. Is there anything that you'd like to mention <laughs> to the people listening or are there any you know, plugs that you'd like to make? Is there anything you'd like to say to the people listening? Um, so again, this gets back to if you're starting. Probably the most important thing to remember when you start is to be kind to yourself because you're going to sit down and your mind's going to wander all over the place. 
and you're going to think, I can't do this. This is too hard. This is not for me. Be kind. It takes a lot of time and a lot of patience. And so a lot of patience, a lot of self-kindness. That's part of the practice is practicing being kind to yourself. Um, and so that is a really important part of practice. So uh, that's the one last little nugget. Yes. Mm-hmm. All righty. Well, I'll, um, I'll have, I'll share links to, um, to your work uh, okay. on, on the show notes and all that sort of stuff. Uh, so thank you very much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. So thanks for sticking around to the end of the show. I hope you enjoyed it. So recently I've been thinking a lot about self mastery over the past few months. I've repeatedly heard the concept that we manufacture our own reality. I've been listening to Jordan Peterson, a clinical psychologist from the University of Toronto, who was blown up on the internet, and I've been reading the book How Emotions Are Made by neuroscientist Lisa Feldman Barrett, who I'll be interviewing over the next few weeks. They've both made me really think about how we are architects of our own reality and what that means when it comes to making decisions about improving our lives. Hence why I asked Sarah Lazar in the interview about meditation being a tool we can use to craft a lens through which we view the world. I thought about this the other day. There are some people who swear by the law of attraction, which was popularized in the book The Secret, which is uh, also a documentary. The thought is that by putting out good vibes into the universe and thinking about what you want to happen in your life, the universe will deliver it to you. This is a bit hard to prove, as you might imagine. But... I think there might be an explanation rooted in neuroscience rather than the new age stuff uh, that might make more sense. So basically, by thinking about uh, whatever goals that you have or anything that you'd like to achieve, you might change the way you process information. So basically, as, as was described in the podcast, we take in an, a huge amount of sensory input and it's just impossible for us to actually uh, process all of this. So the brain filters it. So what I'm thinking is that perhaps by thinking or musing upon a certain goal or a way in which you want to change your life, your brain responds by altering the filter that it, that it uses to pass through all the information that, that, it, uh, that it has to process. And by doing that, you might begin to recognize or notice things that you may have not done, that you may have not, bleh, can't even talk today, that you might not have uh, recognized in the past. So let's say that um, you finally want to start a business and you're thinking about business ideas and, uh, and all that fun stuff. So let's say you're going about your normal day and you're reading the news or just browsing through Reddit or Facebook and some things pop up. Instead of seeing um, whatever pops up as just a bit of uh, entertainment or whatever, you may end up extracting some uh, usable information from that. So it could be a, a video on the implications of the blockchain. And if you're a, a healthcare practitioner and you see that it's going to help with data integrity, you might think, oh, I might be able to use this to create you know, infallible digital health records. Or virtual reality, let's say that you're a meditation practitioner and... Um, you're like, oh, imagine what, what you could do is then create a, uh, a virtual reality simulation whereby you use a neural feedback in, um, device to change the reality that you're in while meditating. This is an idea I had a couple of years ago, but it, it never transpired. But the point is that by crafting the lens through which we view reality, we, cha- we, we create our world. We, we, and by creating that world, we can then take action 
based upon whatever's being presented or whatever we are creating. So that thought is uh, really quite tantalizing because it really places the onus on us. So I don't know. I've just been thinking about this over the past few weeks, um, whether or not it's true or to what degree it's true. Um, who knows? But I think it's worth uh, looking into because it's quite exci- it's, it's quite exciting because, like I said, it, it places the responsibility on us in a way to um, change how we view the world in order to make decisions or optimize for whatever we wish to achieve. So I hope you enjoyed my scattered musings and uh, any thoughts, just uh, let me know. Um, you can get in touch through Twitter. I'm at Sam H Barton, or you can get in contact through talkoftoday.com. Uh, so yeah, say hello. So I've got this um, this meditation headband called the Muse headband, and I meditate with it. It's a uh, an EEG, so it measures my brain waves and gives me real time auditory feedback depending on what's going on in my brain. So my meditation practice has been a bit here and there, but I still have I've been doing it quite regularly, and I've got data from before I tried this psychedelic substance called DMT, and I've got the data from afterwards. So as you can see on, or as you, if, if you want to check it out, you can look at this data on the talk of today's show notes or in the YouTube video, which is linked in the description. Um, you can see that leading up to trying this psychedelic substance, I was a bit scattered. I wasn't very calm. <clears throat> um, my brainwaves are kind of all over the place. But after consuming this substance, um, I was basically zen as fuck. Like... Uh, <laughs> It was quite remarkable. And since then, I've been able to, uh, in a way, replicate or maintain or just have better meditation sessions. Now, I'll explain to you briefly what happened during this um, DMT experience because I think it uh, will help. It could explain why this why this might have been the case or why, why this might have transpired. Now, while I was under the influence, I noticed a distinct separation of self from thought. And it was literally as if I was viewing my thoughts out two meters in front of me. And after about 30 seconds of seeing my thoughts, I was like, oh, God, Sam, just please shut up. You're distracting yourself and, you know, enjoy the the ridiculous experience that you're going through. And I think it was that separation from self and thought that really um, has caused or had a huge effect on my meditation sessions um, afterwards. Uh, And this idea of the separation of self from thought and all of that is something that uh, meditation practitioners talk about, I think. I'm not too well versed in it, but I've heard um, some people speak about it and I've read about it in in, in a few books. So, so yeah. So, I think that's really quite interesting. Um, I've got a a podcast interview coming up with uh, the guys at um, Imperial College who are doing research into the psychedelics, uh, like, LSD, psilocybin mushrooms, and now DMT. They're doing brain imaging studies. So I'm doing that podcast in on Sunday um, in three days. And the date today is Thursday the 20th. So three or four days. Excuse my maths. <laughs> uh, so I'll chat to, to Chris Timmerman, who's the guy who's leading the DMT research, and um, see what he thinks. I've actually already done a podcast on the topic with a guy called Dr. Rick Strassman, who wrote the book DMT, The Spirit Molecule. So if you're interested, check it out.
So anyway, um, that's about it. Uh, if you've been enjoying these podcasts uh, and YouTube videos, which I'm going to be coming out with a lot more of, um, consider supporting me through Patreon. Uh, for, for as little as $1 a month, you can basically make this podcast a reality. I've made the commitment to not run any ads on this show, so your support is literally the only thing I have currently to, um, to cover my costs. And uh, if you'd like to donate some Bitcoin or Ethereum, if you're that way inclined... Uh, you can also do that through talktoday.com slash support. And if you'd like to support the podcast in other ways, you can do so by rating the podcast on iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Just write, uh, you can write a review. I'm really interested, I'm bleh, really interested to hear what you all think. Uh, you can share it with your friends or on social media. And uh, if you'd like to get in touch, um, I'm available at, at shbarton for no, sorry, at SH Barton on Instagram, at Sam H Barton on Twitter. Uh, the Talk of Today Instagram is at Talk of Today or on the Facebook page, Talk of Today Official. I need to get around to uh, to consolidating all of these, but I haven't found one that works across all platforms because Talk of Today is taken on Twitter, SH Barton's taken on Twitter. Uh, so, yeah, working on it. Um, and I think that's about it. Oh, and actually, I will be releasing a um, irregular newsletter, um, basically talking or just filling in on what I've been interested in recently. Um, anything pertaining to science, tech, and society, and what these developments could mean for the future of humanity, but also things like um, you know, great quotes, fun songs that I've been listening to, uh, basically anything I think that's worth sharing or anything that I think is awesome. Actually, one thing that I really want to share is a video that I came across a couple of years ago called Gigapixels of Andromeda. And I rate it as the top three videos I've seen in my entire life because it, what it is is a an image of the Andromeda galaxy, which is, I think, 43 gigabytes in size. And this video is about three and a half minutes and you just zoom in on this on, on this uh, picture and it just pans across uh, across the galaxy. And it's just insane. Each There are just an incalculable number of stars there and they look like grains of sand. So if you want to be just absolutely bamboozled by the scale of the universe, uh, check that out. And that is all, my friends. Take care and thanks for tuning in. Until next time.